you know there are far better pollinator bees than the honeybees, right? Suzanne Batra has been saying so for many, many decades. I just think nature is wonderful. I don't want to get off this planet, you know. You live this long and you learn this much, then you got to go. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, Thinking Beyond the Honeybee, I'm Fenella Saunders. Suzanne Batra came of age in a time when there weren't many women scientists, but she grew up loving all outdoor things. She caught her first trout with a net when she was three years old. She even took a bath once with a bunch of Japanese beetles because, she says, they could swim and they were very pretty. Though her parents tolerated her behavior and sometimes even found it funny, she found out much later that her father had taken her to be mentally evaluated. But she tested fine, so she says they let her continue to play with bugs. Today, 20 years after her retirement, she's still playing with bugs. Over her lifetime, her inventions, observations, and seminal research, particularly with bees, has informed agricultural policy and practice. So I started our interview by asking about the timing of her postdoctoral research that took her to India, where she studied sweat bees. A small grant from American scientist publisher, Sigma Xi, helped to pay her way. Here's an excerpt of our interview, which has been edited for length and clarity. We took our newborn baby to India when she was six weeks old. I had a heck of a time. I also collected bee specimens, which came back to the United States when I came back. I stayed a year in India. So she grew up into a toddler quite safely. We were very careful about her so she didn't get sick. And and I stayed at the Punjab Agricultural University in Ludhiana. That's in northwest India. Punjab is where my husband came from. And I grew up, you know, doing the 40s and 50s. You know, women didn't become scientists. So we went for a year to Punjab Agricultural University and it had its own farms and its own property. And we, I got was got on their staff for a year. So I we had a house, which is provided to the faculty. They provide housing for us faculty which I think is a great idea. It's a big campus and surrounded by a wall. So people couldn't get in and mess with the crops, you know. And you know, there was People just couldn't get in there from the outside. So it was a great place to work. So I studied the sweat bees of India, and they'd never been studied before, plus other bees. I published several papers out of there. Sweat bees hadn't been studied before ever? Well, there were a few, some of the British, you know, they collect insects generally, so in the uh, British Museum were a lot of type specimens. So on the way back, I stopped by the British Museum to identify what kind of bees I had collected and studied. I think I spent about a week at the British Museum to get my bees identified because the types, the original specimens, we call them types, scientists who I made the names for them, who identified them, would have his special specimens there. They were British, so they'd be in the British Museum in England. So I had to identify what the bees were that I had caught or studied. But nobody else had done behavior studies on them? No, not at all. Did you have any particular findings out of those initial studies? Yeah, I got some new species. Uh, One of them was a species of of Cystropha. That's a little black sweat bee. But they walk around and lick your skin. They lick the sweat off. And nobody knows why, but probably they're getting some kind of a nutrient that they need. You know, it probably has a little protein in it, maybe some sugar or something. But yeah, they'll lick your legs or lick your arms. Farmers know about them. It's a solitary bee. 
By the way, most most bees are solitary bees. 20,000 species of bees in the world, about 85% of them are solitary bees. Do they use other sources of moisture with that same kind of technique? Would they take dew off of plants or something? Well, they go gather nectar the same way. They go to flowers. They collect pollen on flowers. They're really quite abundant. People just don't notice them because they're small. They're good pollinators. You'll see them on flowers, on small flowers. Quite a large group of bees. Some species are social. I did my PhD on the social type of sweat bee. Bees are harder to study than ants because they fly. Nervous Nellies. When I was a kid, I used to have ant farms. So I devised essentially a bee farm, same same structure, but it has a landing platform on top. Nobody ever done this with bees before. So I was able to get these bees to nest in this bee farm. And then I could observe their behavior in the nest. So I use these for many kinds of bees to observe their social interactions. You actually made sort of like a clear-sighted structure you can see into? Exactly. That's how I was able to discover how these Coledes bees make their plastic. Yeah, got in science for that one. That was my favorite scientific discovery moment because since I started working on my PhD in 1960, mm-hmm. I've been seeing the bees doing this, and it took me until late 1970s before I was able to answer the question. That's 20 long years of just wanting to find out. I always wanted to know what it was because the sweat bees do the same thing. The bee biology is very peculiar, but I couldn't find anybody to help. I tried to analyze it myself, but I didn't have, you know, you have to have sophisticated chemical equipment to do it. But I tried to do it. when I, I went out to Utah in the late 1960s and worked with a guy named G.E. Bohart, and he's the one who trained me more, and I used these ant farm type things to study several of the bees out there that were poll- used for pollinating alfalfa. So I studied how that made its nest and published a paper on that mm-hmm. and how it made its cells and all that. Well, the whole thing is, of course, the bee and many bees nest in the ground. Many bees nest in the springtime when it rains a lot. And what do they put inside their nests? They put nectar and pollen. Of course, nectar is sweet, isn't it? And fungi like to grow on something that's sweet and wet. So... It's not hard to figure out that you put something sweet and sticky and it absorbs moisture from the air. And so then it gets more dilute and then fungi will grow on it. So then that destroys it. So the the bee baby will die. So it kills the larvae of the bee. So they have to protect themselves from the, see in the, between the soil, people don't think about it, but between the sand grains or the soil grains, it's 100% moisture mm-hmm. underground. That's how plants can grow. 100% right. moisture, right. unless you're in a desert. So the bees have to line the cells with something impervious. So, so these bees have invented plastic. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven when I found it. You know, <laughs> scientists do don't often get a eureka moment. I was itching and itching to know what the heck is this stuff. Oh, by the way, this plastic is biodegradable. I worked with two chemists, two chemists from NIH on that project. See, we're all doing this on the side. And all the most interesting research I've done has been on the side, (laughs) my whole career. So they figured out that it was the same chemically as polyester? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, it's a different polyester. I mean, there are many kinds of polyester. It is a polyester in that class of 
There are many kinds of polyesters. An ester is kind of a chemical, and they link up, so then it becomes a polyester. So it was essentially an organic plastic? Yeah, huh? And it's degradable in five years. I tested it later. How did you test it? Okay, so I took some bee cell, fresh bee cells, which I had dug up out of the dirt, you know, studying them. And then I put them in little nylon mesh bags. I think they were, I still have them. And I buried them in a sand pile where the bees were nesting. And then I dig them up every year. And I, I buried them in a bag so I wouldn't lose track of them, you know. Not a cotton bag because that might degrade when something wouldn't degrade. And I dig them up every year for five years till they fell apart. So it's biodegradable. But there are many kinds of polyesters, you know, and I don't know if it could be made commercially. Where does it come from, though? Does it come out of a gland? Bees have big glands. It's called the dewfors gland. And they don't all make plastic. Some line their cells with another, other chemicals. So first, when they make a cell, it's underground. These are the mother bees, you know. They don't have any workers to help them. So, so they fly out all day long. They're out. They're getting nectar and pollen. They, put, they fill up the cell they had made the night before. So now, the following night, so Mama Kalidis makes a ball out of her pollen and nectar, and then she lays an egg on it, and then she has a little flap. It's like a baggie. looks like a baggie. So she closes down the flap lid. She seals it, and then she backfills it with dirt mm-hmm. back to her burial. Okay, night's coming. So now she starts digging another cell next to it, near it. And that would be about um, maybe 16 inches deep in the dirt. So that night, so she's finished laying that egg. And they have a big dewforce gland, very big. The dewforce gland takes up about roughly a third of the abdomen, maybe almost half, because they make a lot of that plastic. So she's digging another, she digs another off branch from her main branch of her tunnel down from the surface. Maybe it'll be about four, six inches long. And she digs down there, and then she starts digging a cell, which is sort of an opal shape, in the dirt. And she did that carefully and pat it down. They have a special plate on their rear end, these underground bees, called a pagidial plate. And the bees tamp the ground down so it's firm. They have on their knees, they have little plates which they walk on when they're walking in the dirt. You know, taxonomists see these things, but didn't know what they were good for. So bees walk on their knees when they're in the ground. Knee plates they walk on, tools they use. So anyway, so she goes down and tamps that new side barrel. Then at the end of the side barrel, she'll start a, a cell. She'll take great care making it out of earth, tamp it down securely. And then after that, when it's all tight, she'll start licking it. Well, they have a special tongue. Kalidis bees have a special tongue. Looks like a paintbrush. It's a wide, flat tongue. And it has hairs on it. And what she does, she alternately licks. And then she'll lick her abdomen. And that's when she's picking up this chemical from the dewforce gland. It's a liquid. But when it's exposed to the air, it hardens, becomes polyester. So the cell is an oval shape, more or less. And she's going around and around with her tongue. And she, she very rhythmically... She'll touch her tongue to her rear end, pick up a little drop of the secretion, and spread it as she she revolves in the cell. 
And she does it very precisely as a human painter would do with a wide paintbrush, say painting the wall, a small wall of a small room. You go around one one streak exactly next to the rest. So she go revolve around and around in the cell. So here she goes, first layer, cover the entire cell. One streak next to the other, very precise. And then she'll turn around. And then she'll add another layer facing the other. She'll turn around, crisscross, right? And then she'll do the next layer going the other way. She's facing she's facing the opposite way, face the rear of the cell. So she's covering it layer by layer with the secretion. And then she'll turn again towards the opening to the cell, do the third layer. She'll do that a long, slow time. This is all at night, so I had some late nights. You can imagine a person in a very small room with a large paintbrush and she's walking on her knees right in the cell it must dry quite fast so she can walk on it does it go on clear yes it's absolutely transparent absolutely clear sparkling but it's got to be porous to air because the larva has to grow into an adult so it it can oxygen can get in but not moisture isn't that nifty so the polymer is actually designed to let air go through it? Yep, but not moisture. Huh, fascinating. I know. Um, I think so, too. I just think nature is wonderful. Yeah. I don't want to get off this planet, you know. You live this long, and you learn this much, and then you got to go. The one question I wanted to get answered is, is there anything in the bee's saliva that catalyzes it? I never got that answer. And I just can't tell, you know, her saliva, I never got a chance to figure out. She's adding some enzyme from her saliva to her tongue, you know. Always with more questions, that was Suzanne Batra speaking with me about her research on solitary bees, many of which are better pollinators than the honeybee. For a different excerpt of our interview, read my article Beyond the Honeybee in the March-April 2022 issue of American Scientist or online at www.americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist Magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This podcast was edited and produced by Robert Frederick. I'm Fenella Saunders. Thanks for joining us.